Our call to worship is on the screen. It's taken from Psalm 19. How clearly the sky reveals God's glory. How plainly it shows what he has done. Each day announces it to the following day. Each night repeats it to the next. No speech or words are used. No sound is heard. Yet their message goes out to all the world and is heard to the ends of the earth. God made a home in the sky for the sun. It comes out in the morning like a happy bridegroom, like an athlete eager to run a race. It starts at one end of the sky and goes across to the other. Nothing can hide from its heat. We continue with the psalm at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. It gives new strength. The commands of the Lord are trustworthy, giving wisdom to those who lack it. The laws of the Lord are right, and those who obey them are happy. The commands of the Lord are just, and give understanding to the mind. (coughs) Reverence for the Lord is good. It will continue forever. The judgments of the Lord are just. They are always fair. They are more desirable than the finest gold. They are sweeter than the purest honey. They give knowledge to me, your servant. I am rewarded for obeying them. And so in our studies of the book of Revelation, we come to Revelation chapter 10. And we are reading the first 11 verses. So Revelation 10 and verse 1. Then I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voice of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." 
Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said, take it, eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And we leave John's account there. Procrastination is the thief of time. That's what my mother often used to say to me as I was growing up. I see somebody nodding their person that's sitting next to you. Clearly they feel that that person is a procrastinator. Are there any procrastinators here? Any kind of confessed procrastinators? Yeah, there are some. There are some. People who procrastinate spend a lot of time thinking and talking about things rather than doing them. The efficient person has got the job done while the procrastinator is still trying to figure out the most efficient way of doing it. In chapter 10, I think John engages in a little bit of procrastination. In chapters 8 and 9, you get the blowing of the six trumpets in heaven and the catastrophic consequences that befall the earth as a result. You might expect in chapter 10 that the seventh trumpet would be blown. But no. Instead, John spends three verses describing this mighty angel who comes down from heaven. He's robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face is like the sun, his legs like fiery pillars, holding a little scroll, standing astride the sea and the land. And this angel, this angel is not exactly blessed with the gift of brevity either when it comes to saying what he has to say. He raises his right hand to heaven and then swears by him who lives forever by the one who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in that. And then he finally delivers his message with a bit of irony, no more delay. Time's up. It almost feels as if John has been kind of spinning the narrative out, dawdling over his depiction of events until the angel makes this momentous announcement, no more delay. But... In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. That still sounds a little bit further off than you might expect, having heard, no more delay, it's now. It still sounds like there's going to be an interval of at least a few days before the last trumpet is sounded and the mystery of God will be brought to its conclusion. And if you look forward through Revelation, you'll see that the last trumpet doesn't get sounded until the end of chapter 11. And quite possibly the consequences that come from that don't materialise until the end of chapter 14. The Bible is clearly right when it says that with the Lord, a thousand years are like a single day, and one day is like a thousand years. Biblical time is pretty elastic, really. Which may have something to do with the eternal God operating outside of time altogether. So the time for sounding the final trumpet is now, but actually it's not going to happen for the little just yet. If you commute on Southern Rail, you know that feeling very well. Back in Revelation, the time of waiting is over. This is the moment when the mysterious purpose of God is going to be brought to fulfilment. And it could happen at any moment, but it just hasn't happened quite yet. 
And while he's waiting for the imminent blowing of the last trumpet, John is given something to eat, the little scroll that the mighty angel has been holding in his right hand. He's warned before he puts it in his mouth that it will taste delicious, but it will give him indigestion. Personally, I think I might think twice before eating that. But John does as he's told, and he eats the scroll, and sure enough, it tastes sweet as honey, but it turns his stomach bitter or sour. And then he's told, you must prophesy again. The NIV says about many people's nations, languages and kings, but probably more likely John is told he will prophesy against many people's languages, nations and kings. Clearly the eating of the scroll is meant to represent the way which John, as God's prophet, is meant to internalise the message that he's given to proclaim. But why should it taste so good and then give him such chronic indigestion? There's no doubt that the message he's given is one of good news. When it talks about the mystery of God being announced to his servants, the prophets, the word used there is used elsewhere of preaching the gospel. It is the bringing of glad tidings, good tidings. It's a great message. This is reflected in the way that John finds the scroll so sweet to the taste when he eats it. So why should the internalising the good news of the gospel make John feel unwell? Sometimes that doesn't seem quite right. Yet John's experience of eating the scroll corresponds in some measure to what we may experience when we embrace the good news. When we first become Christians, there is often an initial sense of euphoria. But it never lasts forever, does it? Sooner or later we find that living the Christian life out in practice is hard work. And there will be tears of pain and grief as well as tears of joy. We don't live on a high all the time. Why is that? Well, partly because the initial rush of joy that we might get when we first accept Jesus is like a foretaste of what heaven will be like. And there may often be times, hopefully you get some here, when you're caught up in a sense of how fantastic God is. And you get an emotional high for a while. But we aren't in heaven yet. As he reminded us in his prayers, we live in a broken and hurting world. And we are called to share the world's pain. And there will be times when we ourselves end up being broken and hurting because of our decision to follow Jesus. He did say, didn't he, if we wanted to follow him, we would have to take up our cross to do so. Christianity is not a feel-good religion. It's not about floating through life in a bubble of joy. There will be times when it is hard graft. And that's not because there's anything wrong with the message of salvation. It's simply that the world we live in, the people we rub shoulders with, the people we rub shoulders with in church, and we ourselves actually, are far from perfect. So with the joy, there will also be grief and sorrow. So be ready for that, and don't be surprised when, not if, it happens. So the message of salvation is good news, it's, it's great, it's sweet to the taste when we receive it, but sometimes proclaiming that... Engaging with a world that doesn't want to know can be painful. It's good news for the world, but the world may not be all that eager to hear it. And so there is inevitably a degree of confrontation between the gospel and the powers that be. We receive it as good news, it's sweet, but when we try and pass it on, it's not easy. And that might be one of the the stomach-churning things that John experienced. Remember, John is called to prophesy against peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And we read Revelation, and some of it is pretty grim. 
And he would have rejoiced writing all that stuff. That would have caused him pain in his heart because he recognised the suffering that the message entails. The gospel itself is good news. The bad news is that the world rejects it. And that may well be a reason why John has an upset tummy after eating the scroll. Not everyone wants to hear the message he's given to proclaim because it's proclaimed to a world that doesn't want to know. It comes across as bad news and he will have felt the pain of that. If you're reading through the New Testament, not a bad thing to do if you're a Christian, all that stuff about Jesus at the beginning is great to the taste. But reading Revelation at the end can give you a bit of a stomachache because it's all so grim and scary. The message John is given is good news. Jesus is Lord. But if people don't want to hear that Jesus is Lord, the message that he's really in charge can be bad news. And part of the focus of Revelation is the outworking of the conflict between the Lamb of God seated on the throne and those who reject his authority. Have a look at the image on the screen. (coughs) Having read that passage from Revelation, Revelation 10, it may look vaguely familiar. It's a figure with what looks like a rainbow around his head. His hands are stretched out towards two subservient figures either side of him. The figure on the right of the picture is a mermaid. You can see the waves of the sea just above her head. And she's given the central figure an oar, symbolising his mastery over the waves. On the other side, at the base of what looks like a rainbow, you can't quite make it out, but that's a horn of plenty filled with agricultural produce. And the figure below that is either putting something into or receiving something from the central figure's right hand. The relief portrays the central figure standing astride the land and the sea and ruling over them both. Having read Revelation 10 or listened to Revelation 10, you might suppose that this carving is based on that chapter. But it isn't. It's found in the imperial temple at Aphrodisias in what is now western Turkey, which is where the seven churches to whom John wrote Revelation are based. And the figure on the relief is the Roman emperor ruling the world. The picture is designed to show that Caesar is in charge of land and sea. He's the one who brings plenty. He's the one who controls the waves. Land and sea are subservient to him. And what John does in Revelation 10 is he takes a typical image of the emperor and he parodies it. Because in Revelation it's not Caesar that's ruling over the land and sea, it's an angel coming down out of heaven ruling over land and sea. And John is saying, it's God who's in charge, not Caesar. And God's authority over land and sea and creation is represented by this mighty angel. (coughs) That's where the tension comes. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And so sooner or later, there's going to be trouble. And one of the reasons why John got stomach cramps internalising the message of the good news, that he is commissioned to proclaim the good news to a world that is either not interested or is actually quite hostile. And that could be painful and costly. And he was writing to churches who were bearing the pain of witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ and were suffering as a result of it. They knew the cost of following Christ. John, in exile on Patmos, is challenging the status quo by writing Revelation. He's challenging the authority of the Roman Emperor. At first, writing such an obscure symbolic book might seem to be quite a strange way of going about this. But it has rightly been said that every totalitarian regime is frightened 
of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing alternative futures to the one single thing the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. And John does precisely that. It's the angel representing the authority of God over land and sea, not the Roman emperor, challenging, parodying, overturning Roman propaganda. Thanks, Andy, we can lose the image now. As a community of God's people, we are called to a prophetic ministry of confronting evil, injustice and hypocrisy and challenging this worldly concepts of power, wealth, status and security. And that's not easy, but that's our calling. As Cardinal Basil Hume said once, whenever the poor are afflicted or neglected, or whenever human freedom and dignity is not respected, then the church has a duty to sound a prophet's note. And it must be prepared to be unpopular on matters which concern politicians as well. So that prophetic engagement with the values and the power structures of the world is what we are called to do as we wait for the return of Christ. John leaves his readers hanging on a precipice a bit after the sound of the sixth trumpet. The end of the world is imminent. Time has run out. Christ could return at any moment and fulfil the mystery of God that has been announced to his servants, the prophets. And because the angel says, this is the moment, there is no more time, there's a sense in which John wants to convey to his readers, you are living in the last days before the seventh angel blows his trumpet. So how should you be spending your time? How should we be ready and prepared for the final end of all things? Our calling is not to retreat into our churches and to sing hymns behind closed doors. We're here in church this morning. We've sung hymns, that's right and proper. But our calling is to go out from here and to make known the good news that Jesus is Lord. That's the focus of the story of the two witnesses that John tells in Revelation 11, before the final and seventh trumpet is sounded. We don't withdraw, we don't turn in on ourselves, we don't become so heavenly minded that we have no earthly use. We recognise Jesus is Lord over this world. And we are called to embody and express his values, his agenda, his kingdom. In Revelation, the followers of Jesus are called to be prophetic witnesses to a world order that is passing away. And that's our calling as well. Time and again, John talks about the church as being prophets. He talks about them being witnesses. We are the same today. Jesus is Lord. And the socio-economic powers and the military powers and the cultural superpowers that hold sway in the world, they are all living on borrowed time. So our allegiance has to be to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Our values have to be his values. The message we live by is that Jesus is Lord. The message we proclaim is that Jesus is Lord. It's great news. It's changed our lives for the better. It's sweet to the taste when we hear God's word. But we live in a society that discounts and disowns Jesus. So doing that is going to be costly. But, but, he's coming back. And in this interval that there is between his resurrection and return 
Our task is to do all we can to declare that Jesus, Jesus is Lord.